Welcome to this episode of the Spinoza Triad with myself, John Gibbs, Dr. Richard Miller, and Dan Rowland. This week, we are in truth the Spinoza Quartet, since we're being joined by Dougie Booth, who, once a student of mine and Richard's, is now an educator himself at King's College London, and also a PhD student researching into politics. week's episode, we consider concepts of freedom, the Republican concept of freedom, and developing ideas about freedom in a democracy. We also think about the way the pandemic, climate crisis, and a changing world may impact on democracy and capitalism itself. We ask the question, is this the end of the world as we know it? Listen to our last podcast. Yes, the one on freedom and yeah. the digital age. I'm just going to say to that to our listeners that that, that was particularly impressive podcast. Oh, very impressive. I felt that we really nailed some big ideas there. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't anyone who hasn't listened Subject to that, they are missing out. You know, they're really. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was great. I thought it went really over the, some of the questions of freedom. What is freedom? I currently spent like the first half of this academic term teaching on freedom and different conceptions of freedom. I'm still marking papers on it. So it's already fresh on my mind um, on some of the debates. You're now teaching part-time at King's. Yes. Before we get into freedom, how, how are you finding that? I mean, how are you finding the students and the whole teaching experience? Not, notwithstanding, they could be listening, but, you know, how are you finding teaching? I mean, the, the, the students at King's are all really bright, really tuned in really keen to jump straight into things so i do the kind of like seminar leading so there's sort of um the main lecture and then afterwards for like an hour with each class i'm sat there kind of answering questions and then kind of questioning them getting them to rise up to debates and stuff like that about right for questions at hand and sometimes it's a bit like pulling teeth uh you ask a question and you're staring at a sea of blank confused faces but sometimes, you know, something just clicks and they're all suddenly very, uh, very engaged getting into right. these debates for the first time. And it's absolutely fascinating to watch. That sounds wonderful. You were saying before we began that you've you've been working on a paper on freedom. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So it's related to the stuff on negative liberty uh, you talked about last week, right? But the conception of negative liberty as freedom from intervention. So I'm drawing on a lot of literature from the Republican tradition in uh, political theory, political right. philosophy. And they have a similar uh, notion of freedom, but it's kind of like a critique of that negative liberty conception. So if we think of... Can, the, you, just, the, can you just pause for a second, Dougie? Could, could you just outline the Republican negative freedom? It's just if anyone's listening and didn't, hasn't listened to the other one. So Republican... So negative uh, liberty, of course, the classical conception we find like Berlin is it's freedom from interference, right? 
you're free in as far as you are able to do what's in your capacities and no one intervenes. And that, that maybe sounds like kind of intuitive, well and good, you know, I'm free as long as I'm not being interfered with, I can do what I want. The Republican conception has a critique of that that leads to their sort of alternative. So think of like uh, an example, which is kind of this like classic example in Republican theory of like a benevolent slave master. So say there's a slave and there's a master. The master has all the legal and maybe like social uh, normative rights to tell the slave exactly how to do their life. They can interfere with the slave at any point they want. But this particular slave master is extremely benevolent and decides to let the slave do whatever the slave wishes to do. The slave is never interfered with by the master. However, the slave master still at all times retains the ability to completely change the slave's life. At any moment, they can have an arbitrary change of emotions and decide, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to force you to work 60 hours a week and do what I want. Because the slave is under the sort of arbitrary power of the slave master, even if he's not interfered with, he's still, we would say, unfree. So the Republican conception of freedom is a, one of non-domination. But you're only free if you're not under the arbitrary power of another. So we can think, right, and this has sort of political consequences, but you might have a liberal conception of freedom of non-interference. You might imagine that there could be sort of like an autocratic state, maybe something like Singapore, right, where most people's like private rights to be non-interfered with, like there's not much interference in the economy, that's all sort of maintained, but you're still under the arbitrary will of authoritarian state. They might decide never to interfere with you, but at any moment they have the power and the capacity to do so. And so the Republican theory of freedom is sort of inherently connected to a sort of idea of democracy, self-governance, and constitutional rule of law. Because for them, in the Republican conception, to be right. free is to be free of arbitrary power. And that means any power that's going to be influenced needs to be rationally determined, non-arbitrary, in that it's sort of democratically organised. And so it has this built-in mechanism for equality and justice built into it. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because making a distinction there between the arbitrary use of power and the constitutional legal use of power. As we sit here now in this, what we imagine to be a governed by a rule of law, we imagine mm-hmm. that we are governed by a rule of law. Mm-hmm. We're still, we're still not not free in the sense. In time of war, in time of emergency, if the government so wish to put a motorway through my house, they can do so. I ultimately don't have freedom except without a state at all. Republican conception is that interference in someone's life might not necessarily be an infringement of their freedom. If if you get arrested and put in prison for murder but that law was determined in a democratic way. That's an expression of freedom in a Republican sense. Because it's not domination by an arbitrary power, because it's a sort of democratic self-rule, it's not like a, it's an expression of freedom to have rules and laws because it's kind of opposing domination and it's kind of this democratically self-organized way. Whereas in the liberal conception, we think it might be a justified infringement on your freedom, but it's still an infringement on your freedom. So that's the uh, that's yes. the compromise. People are well, not like Rousseau being forced to be free. Um, yeah, exactly. But being forced to, but they choose to follow a rule. Like that might be the best expression democratically. 
then if they choose not to follow those rules, they can't be part of a society that they say they are free in. That's interesting. The parable of the slave who has a benevolent master who treats him with great uh, consideration and maybe even treats him with, with a high degree of uh, care is not free because his relationship is one of slavery. Right. Whereas in a republic, the relationship is governed by things such as the rule of law, the due process of the law, legitimacy, accountability, uh, de democratic accountability. And so it, the relationship is contractual. And in a contractual relationship, no matter how a citizen might feel the weight of the state's power, they are still free. In that sense, it's Weber's understanding of the nation state being that organization which claims the monopoly of violence. The state can kill you. The state can imprison you as long as it has done that with your consent, legitimately and not arbitrarily. ago I was teaching a student in year 10. They were GCSE class, 20 students in the class and this particular student was talking a lot and I was teaching them English literature I think and they were talking, 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 chatting to a friend and not doing any work so very almost cliched little moment was about to take place. I as the teacher went over to her and said stop talking or if you if you keep chatting to your friends I'll move you to a different seat. And indeed, she did carry on chatting to her friends, so I followed through the threat by telling her to move. She said to me, and I can recall her saying this to me, why do you get to tell me where to sit and I don't get to tell you where to sit? Now, of course, I naturally responded that that was rude, and I was the, I didn't think it said I was the teacher. I don't think I even said that. I just simply gave her another warning and told her to move. She moved. However, however, I might have replied, that the reason is I'm a teacher and my teacher qualifications legitimate me as such and those teacher qualifications come from a parliament or a government uh, which gets its authority from a parliament when the parliament gets its authority from the people and her parents are those people and one day she will be the people when she can vote so in essence the reason I can tell her where to sit is because she allows me to do that in the context of a constitutional process. I really wish I'd actually said that, actually. I obviously didn't say that. One of the kind of interesting things is that it's quite nice about this sort of concern with uh, non-domination. It's not just to do with the state, right? We think about like living in the state. We need to have sort of non-arbitrary power within the state. We don't want to just be living in sort of tyranny or anarchy. We want to kind of have a non-arbitrary system of governance. Some Republicans will take this theory of freedom and expand it beyond the sort of narrow political concerns of the state. And they'll start looking uh, sort of at like social life and economic life as well. Um, so you can think for like a theory of freedom, we maybe want to say like a question uh, if maybe we, let's say, 200 years ago, living in a, an extremely intense patriarchal society, we might want to ask, are women free? 
And the Republican uh, concern was used then uh, by a lot of sort of early feminists to sort of say, well, no, women aren't free. They're, they're dominated because they're under the arbitrary power of their husbands, of their fathers, of uh, church authorities. And so to do that, we need to make sure that there's opposition towards these structures of domination, uh, their replacement with some sort of much more democratic, egalitarian uh, systems. So, Dougie, there you're, there you're describing um, first-wave feminists who saw women's equality as likely to be achieved, or to be achieved, in fact, through uh, legal means, a legalistic answer. Yes. Be, through rights, through the establishment of rights, the rights to vote, civil rights, rights to participate in politics, rights to join political parties, uh, protection of the law in terms of um, property rights and well, uh, divorce rights and so on. All the things that would place them on legally an equal footing with men. Yeah, exactly. But of course we know, don't we? And of course that, that would, and I'm sure, and if you look at th things that people like Mary Wollstonecraft and others were writing, they also knew that was only the beginning and that inequality and prejudice and discrimination are uh, derived from dominant cultural values and beliefs which can't be touched, as it were, by constitutional processes. Is it possible to say that both the left and the right about non-intervention non from government, infringements on our individual liberty or restrictions, so it's very similar to the hippies of the 60s, what the alt-right are saying now? Yeah, yeah I think that's a really good point that Sort of even both like the liberal conception of freedom as non-interference and the Republican one of non-domination, they both mm. get taken up by the left and right. I think you're you're right to say that liberalism with like non-interference, we'll think maybe about a uh, proprietarian uh, right wing, like that. Mm. The thing talks about like the night watchman state, uh, a minimal state sort of system that's kind of associated with like neoliberalism, but then. On sort of the left wing, you'll see maybe non-interference be used in maybe like a social cultural sense, right? That yeah. the state shouldn't be telling us how we should be dressing or who we're allowed to love, uh, these sorts of things. I think republicanism is in the same way of non-domination has the same kind of uh, left-right history. Some strains of republicanism are really focused upon non-domination in terms of property, property yeah. owners, uh, shouldn't be put under sort of arbitrary power to have their property infringed upon. The centre of any sort of republic needs to be the, the propertied citizen. You sort of see this with like early American society, that there's this big focus on opposition to like uh, landless uh, craftsmen, labour, because they think that they're not going to have sufficient political ties to the republic, whereas landed uh, property owners will. But then sort of, if you take it non-domination to the left, we see maybe that example of like uh, feminist republicanism, but also sort of like a sort of labor republicanism, where they'll talk about uh, domination in the workplace, for instance. If you think about non-democratic nature of uh, a private company, that as a worker, you're gonna spend 40, 50 hours of your week in this place, and you have sort of no democratic input into how this uh, company is run, no democratic input into the sort of uh, your working conditions or the policies that are going to be dictating so much of your life. 
And so Republicans have kind of used non-domination for the left to say, well, we need to have some sort of democracy in the economy or some sort of system of uh, non-domination in the economy. So we actually this moment, Dougie, we should probably be clear that uh, your use of the term Republican and Republicanism isn't referring to the current Republican Party in the United States, the party of Ronald Reagan, the party of Donald Trump, for that matter. You're not re- referring to contemporary. But if anything, you're referring to the Republicanism that that party originated in and, and the Democrat Party similarly originates in. In other words, the ideals of Montesquieu, of uh, John Locke, of, of Rousseau, the ideas of social contract, checks and balances, separation of powers, uh, rule of law, and constitutionalism, and that sort of republicanism. Yeah, exactly. Rather than modern-day party, American political party republicanism. One of the most interesting things about that idea as a sort of third way is a very pure form of American government, in a way. So it's a, it's a vision of the American government, which is ne- ne- neither neoliberal nor neoconservative. And it offers, I think, an alternative reflected that there's a great sort of contest going on between the United States or the Western view of freedom and the sort of more Hobbesian view of freedom that you see in China, the Leviathan state, that that you are free, but under the auspices of the dominant state. In other words, no one can be free in a state of anarchy, no one can be free in a state of poverty. So rule out anarchy, rule out poverty, and you have a freedom that is denied, say, the poor person living in the American inner city, that is denied the black Americans, that is denied the people who fall sick without um, health care in America. So in China, you enjoy a level of freedom, which may be no freedom at all. But the Republican concept, I think, might offer an alternative, a very attractive alternative to the challenge of China, since it is not the, the kind of libertarian free fire zone, free market concept of society, the negative free society. It might instead be the communal state. If it can foster the values of civility and trust, the kind of America described as being eroded by neoliberalism of Robert Putnam, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, that America of communality, of trust, of neighborliness, with an understanding that those informal networks of trust and neighborliness create the republic, as it were, the republic of trust and neighborliness the Republic of the Community. Well, the left might look at our democracy and its, its constitutional structures and say, well, that, ultimately, you must go to work. Ultimately, you will work away your lives to make someone else rich. There is in it a, a fundamental inequality and the democratic structures are just there to mask that. It's just an illusion. Yeah. The, the complaints box in the old-fashioned factory. 
Anyone can write anything they like about me. <laughs> how disgusting. Put it in the complaints box. We know that's an illusion. Is not liberal democracy itself. The left would certainly say this. Parliamentary systems are just masks for us to believe there's some sort of structural consent and redress, even though that is not really true. We, we still have to work our lives out regardless. Doesn't that complaint thing, though, John, I think it, it's reflective of, of our broader concerns about feelings. I'm, I feel very much grievance. I've written that down. I put it in there. Now I feel slightly better because the grievance, it's its like a zoological ethics. It's keeping at a distance your relationship to it, but I feel better because I've, I've entered into the I've entered into the the debate almost with my with my grievance. It doesn't actually change the, the structural di- dimension at all. I think the structural point is a really good point, and it's kind of um it links to the historical debate in republicanism about whether or not we're going to have a sort of plebeian republicanism or a sort of aristocratic republicanism, and both have kind of different uh, entails, sort of very drastically different political systems. And the aristocratic republicanism uh, is this kind of classic sort of ancient Roman conception of like. Uh, the Senate, where you have these sorts of expert representatives of the people that are going to sort of carefully consider the common good and put their sort of expert wisdom into enacting that common good through carefully crafted legislation by this expert minority, which kind of, you know, it sounds similar to maybe sort of the justifications we would have uh, for maybe our parliamentary system here in the UK and other similar systems that well, you know, our MPs, they're experts who have been elected by the people to enact the will of the people. Um, but as you say, well, the left has a lot of reasons to be sceptical about that, right? To say, well, these people are just representing uh, a corporate elite, institutionalised capitalism, but they don't really represent the will of the people. They don't enact any sort of common good. And how can you have a common good when there's such drastically different conflicting interests in society right the interest of the person who wants to build the mega highway and the person whose house is in the way are going to be drastically different that thought that might originally been on the left is now coming from the the right Uh, things Mm. like brexit and trump so there's a kind of complete confusion that that the right and the far right are using the language of the left now and it becomes very confusing and traditionally the response to any imbalance in power was collectivization and formation of trade unions and and bargaining but here you've got the right using the language of the left without any of the power so people Mm. are marching towards the right when they should actually be organizing themselves and forming collective positions against injustice but they're left powerless i mean the the classical example of that that sort of like uh forming sort of like a new collective power. And it's the one that's always used by sort of plebeian Republicans is the formation in ancient Rome of the Tribune of the Plebs, where all the uh, impoverished people in ancient Rome in protest to the Senate's uh, overreaching power, they had a secession of the plebs. They all said, uh, we're out of here. We're leaving the city. We're going to go stand on a hill, essentially going on strike, right? Saying, we're not going to be in the city. We're not going to be your domestic servants. We're not going to sell you goods. Until uh, we're given some sort of political power here to redress our concerns and to have actual bargaining power. And that sort of leads to the creation of the Tribune of the Plebs, this elected position by the sort of common people that had a sort of extremely powerful veto power over uh, Senate legislation and directives and uh, also on appointments and stuff like that.
think that's a really interesting distinction you make there, Dougie, between the plebeian and the aristocratic forms of republic, the, the republic being the structure of, of power and accountability, and the aristocratic, but I don't think many British people would look at our, or American for that matter, would look at their uh, society and think of it as particularly aristocratic. Certainly the Americans wouldn't, they have a horror of aristocracy. We with a house of lords and a monarchy might, might accept there was an element of that. But we wouldn't think of it as an aristocratic republic. But in your terms, it certainly is. We pass on power to some kind of elected elite. They generally are an elected elite. They are from a more educated class. They're from a politically professional class. They possess enormous amounts of power. They, they're literally the monopoly of violence. And in that sense... We are highly aristocratic. They're not philosopher kings. We may have a low opinion of them, but we trust them to do, whether they do or not, we trust them to do, to do power on our behalf. And we've really lost any kind of faith in, the, in a plebeian sense of, of a republic. You know, power from the people, the voice of the people, power to the people, you know, like Citizen Smith of the 1970s sitcom. You know, power to the people is, is gone as an idea. It is really a sort of busted idea and uh you know if you look back at history was it was it mrs thatcher that destroyed the unions was it the was it arthur scargill did he break the back of the miners against the ramparts of thatcherism or was it a changing economy or in globalization and a dissipation of collective working practices like factories and mines and such like or was it as richard suggests something actually altogether more symbolic what's happened is a distancing from ourselves and our sense of collective identity, working class identity, into an atomized consumer identity. It wasn't Mrs. Thatcher that broke the power of the unions. It was Ronald McDonald and the advertising industry. Also go back to the point I made earlier that uh, tribunes of the people they tend to be constructed by um, the powers uh, the elites in order to dissipate the powers of the working classes and that was certainly true in ancient Rome I would suggest I mean the tribunes of the people the voice of the people their job in a sense is to provide a voice for the people so the people can be ignored uh, the Tribune of the people, what do you require? Uh, the transfer of land and property to uh, the equal distribution of land and property and a redistribution of wealth. Whoa. Uh, public executioner, where are you? You know, that that was what happened to the, Gra or the Gracchi brothers. One's beaten to death in the forum and the other one commits suicide. You know, the tribunes of the people were expected to, well, do what trades unions tended to do. Demand bit longer lunch breaks and better pay so they can afford more stuff. And one of the reasons I think we lost faith in tribunes of the people or trades union leaders or trades union power is that it was so lacking in any kind of ambition. If it suggested that it might want more ambitious structural changes to society, it was either ignored, vilified, turned into comic parodies of itself, or dissipated in the rush for consumerism.
We just had a debate this week about whether MPs should have jobs. Should MPs have part-time jobs outside work? And the argument goes something like, well, they've got to think things on our behalf, so they should keep at least one toe in the world of ordinary folk. Be consultants to giant multinationals, that'll actually keep them in touch with ordinary people. <laughs> and the, and the, idea, the other sort of idea there is that uh, these people are engaged in thoughts that are way beyond us in their ivory tower of parliament. In, in order, in order that, that they can know on our behalf how to how to run society. It's very, it's very aristocratic, isn't it? That, that yeah, absolutely. Um, that point you said, you know, the Tribune of the plebs, they kind of get subsumed into the sort of power structure. I think that's always the kind of central concern for any broadly plebeian politics is how do you minimise any sort of oligarchic power, right? If you make a position or you make a structure, how do you prevent that from then just becoming uh, another tool in maintaining sort of aristocratic rule? There's lots of different proposals, whether that's turning away entirely from these sorts of representative systems, whether or not you need to go for more sort of like small, direct democratic councils, a system of like delegation rather than representation, where the kind of divide being that a representative, you elect them, and then for three, four, five years, they have the kind of freedom to go and use their expert opinion. Whereas a delegate tends to be elected for a shorter time, uh, has a very clear mandate from the direct democracy they've originated from, for whatever body they're going to, to vote in a certain way, and that they're immediately recordable for re-election. That, you know, you only need a very small vote to be like, well, I don't, I don't think you're actually following our interests here. I think you're kind of cozying up to the aristocracy here. You need to come back and we're going to vote on somebody else. Because the Americans try to solve this with a, a republic which has a, a very short-lived representative body, the House of Representatives. And so you've got two years in which you have to face the people again. That was actually designed to be a kind of house of the people, tribune of the people. They, if they deviate at all from the interests of the ordinary folk, they will be got rid of two years later. Because it doesn't work that way at all. And any glance at America and the House of Representatives sees it's, it's dominated by long-lasting incumbents who stay there for decades and decades. Or the, or the interest of powerful interest groups that, in a sense, Plato's right. They need to go and live in a monastery somewhere or something. <laughs> <laughs> Society has corrupted them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's why I quite like social Republicans or socialist Republicans, because they kind of take this step further, even the plebeians, to say, well, it's not just good enough to change the political structure, because if you don't change the social economic structure as well, the same influences are going to find a way, maintain their power over the political system. But if you're still going to have uh, multinational corporations that control exceedingly uh, large amounts of wealth, they're going to find some way to capture uh, control of the democratic system, whether that's through you know, lobbying or basically writing legislation or doing like a capital strike and saying, well, if you're going to put that legislation, we're just going to move our business elsewhere. You know, we're going to offshore all of our money and invest in China <laughs> instead of uh, the UK where you want to try and control us. So the socialists would probably say it's not just enough that we change our political system you need to fundamentally change the economic system to deal with that sort of domination. Yeah, that's really interesting, Dougie. I wonder what, though, the socialist republic would look like. I mean, the socialist republic is something 
I'm sort of familiar with in the sense that it was I was brought up in a very socialist house. My father was the sort of religion of our house was socialism. He was a socialist trades unionist, and when I was a child in the 1960s and 70s, regularly there could be a knock on the door a winter's night and a man delivering the Tribune, the Tribune being the left-wing paper of the Labour Party. And my dad would uh, pay the guy, to have an earnest conversation with him, and they'd, good luck to your comrade, off he'd go into the night, and my dad would read the Tribune. And in the Tribune, and my dad's conversations, and the way I was brought up, what I was told was there'd been a revolution, but it had been unfinished. It was, was the socialism deferred. I mean, his story was of the 1945-51 government. It had nationalised the commanding heights of the economy in an attempt to restructure the economy in the interests of working people. It was, it was the beginning. It was the first step. It had, it had been unfinished. And the unfinished promise of the, of the socialist republic was something I felt was always waiting round the corner. It was waiting, as my dad used to say, say to me, for the, for the trades unions to realise their power, or the Labour Party to gain power and have the courage to transform society economically and structurally in the interests of the working people. But as I got older, I realised that the enemy of the people, as far as my father was concerned, secondarily capitalism, and primarily the people. And they were deluded, they were misled, they were sheep being pushed in the wrong direction, and the scales would fall from their eyes one day and they would see the reality of socialism. But unfortunately, they persistently wished to have lives of consuming and not of socialist virtue. And they became the problem. And I, and I realized my father had a terrible frustration with the persistent failure of ordinary people to embrace the ambition that he hoped they might have. And that all struck me as a tremendous paradox, really, that my father's contempt for the ordinary working man and his almost religious belief in the virtues of the ordinary working man existed side by side, which I think is a neat segue into what we're going to talk about next week. Or, well, when I say next week, in our next podcast which is the ideas of Mark Fisher and capitalist realism. But what his premise seems to be, economic structures and, and political structures are kind of moving the chairs around. Ultimately, yeah. what, what capitalism has done is something like Althusser suggests. It's got inside our heads. We are, we are completely subsumed into capitalism to such an extent. We manifest it through our everyday lives in a way that makes, makes our discussions of constitutional freedoms and citizens' juries or parliaments quite irrelevant that, that was yeah. going to be my question for you dougie really to i wonder if you could comment on this what's the relationship now with transnationals and intervention and how much of that do we allow mm. do, do these models sort of pass over to that <laughs> is are there current models that, you, that you're working with understand this relationship between you know the old political state models and shifting transnational power i've yeah. just finished uh, google archipelago it was quite interesting on similar and this kind of arguments it's an, an interesting book but it's it's really making the points around how much of our lives are, are a result of algorithms and google and, and this, these mm. kinds of issues but the discussion so far it's sort of I, I know discursively political philosophy has a certain way of talking about certain things and sort of reflecting on politics culture economics now i mean things are moving so quickly so rapidly and i wonder a bit like fisher really in some respects we we cannot see out of it i mean it's, that's the argument of capitalist realism isn't it that it's any challenge to it seems incredible my phd research is in very early days but i'm looking at this 
this new identified trend that for the last 40 years we've had neoliberalism, which has this very supposedly hands-off approach to the economy. There should be minimal intervention into the economy, but the efficiency of private competition in the market will lead to the most positive outcomes, the most efficiencies uh, being made. Yeah. Um, and that maybe under the crisis of coronavirus, that whole sort of paradigm has started to very rapidly collapse. That we saw, you know, over the last two years, we've seen some of the most expansive and deep-reaching state interventions, not only in the economy, but also into social life in general. If we think about some of the sort of universal basic income schemes that have been tried out, the ways in which the state has played like a new coordinating role over the economy to secure PPE, to implement new systems, to ensure that goods are still being delivered during pandemic conditions. New role of the state was almost like unimaginable for the neoliberal consensus four or five years ago. But now it seems like it might be something that's here to stay. But now that that kind of, now that the sort of seal has been broken, that we've seen that actually a neo-statist is what it's starting to be called, a neo-statist model of this state of coordinating yeah. and intervening into the economy. It might be that it's here to stay. So that's part of what my research is on. Is there a cultural shift? I mean, is there actually something significant, a significant challenge to the dominant way that capitalism is organised? It's one of those things that every now and again in history, you say, are things changing? And will these changes stick? Is something big happening right now? If you call it statism, is there a neo-Keynesian return? The liberal dominant Mrs Thatcher, 1979, Ronald Reagan, period of neoliberalism, is that coming to an end? Yeah, it's, it's one of these questions of, are we seeing a return to the classic interventionist models of the 20th century with sort of state-controlled, state control of the currency, some nationalised industries and infrastructure, and a more direct control, uh, especially if you look at sort of like Eastern Europe, so more direct control of actual economic organs. Or, and it maybe doesn't seem like we're actually having a return to that. Any talk of nationalisations, even though we're still seeing sort of maybe a return of the state, a return of the state as direct owner and controller of the state doesn't seem, of the economy, sorry, doesn't seem to be exactly in the direction we're heading. Like the idea of like powerful, large, private, international corporations doesn't seem to be something that is still being challenged in this new consensus that's maybe forming. It's maybe being seen that there needs to be more state regulation of those bodies, but also that the state needs to have maybe a symbiotic relationship with those bodies that the state is now coordinating and contracting with these bodies to do what it maybe would have done 40, 50 years ago with nationalised industries. So that the sort of consensus of private ownership doesn't seem to be being challenged at all. But maybe the freedom with which private entities were allowed to act is maybe being subordinated to more government oversight is maybe the direction we're heading in. Can, can you unpack that a bit more, Dougie? This idea maybe that the corsair or the privateer state, and it's kind of even not just sort of like a new phenomenon, but if you look at certain nations like Japan and China, it was being practiced sort of in the neoliberal area where the state wasn't looking to own factories, own infrastructure, own international business or international banks or anything like this, but rather the state was trying to create the conditions in which private firms 
would have international competitiveness. And one of the more recent trends of this is that maybe one of the logics behind right-wing corporatist arguments for Brexit is that um, by taking uh, back uh, sovereignty, in big air quotes, the British state will be able to create the regulations, the right conditions to make British firms internationally competitive as a kind of extension of British power, the British state power. So although it's not like trying to reclaim ownership of economic capacity, it's trying to use these sorts of private merchants as this kind of you know that classic idea of like the private navy rather than the state navy that you Mm -hmm. kind of give them these big contracts you're creating infrastructure projects for them to work upon and building infrastructure that they can utilize so that they can be internationally competitive yes i like that point about you've just made there dougie about what we might call buccaneer capitalism or or the state's relationship with buccaneer capitalism that becomes a facilitator. We, we build the railways, we build the infrastructure, capitalism delivers the wealth. I remember listening to Radio 4's Question Time programme during the Brexit period, when Brexit debate was dominating every show a couple of years ago. And there was a guest on there called Jim Radcliffe, and he, by the way, is Britain's richest man. And he's the director or owner, director, founder of Ineos, the big chemical engineering company, which has been numerously fined by the EU for violations of environmental regulations. He's personally moved his wealth to Monaco to escape paying into the British tax system. But nonetheless, on this show, he's, he's an enthusiastic Brexiteer. And he's, and he's made that very much, used the term buccaneer. You know, the Corsair buccaneer. He says, Britain, Britain will be free like in the days. And we were, we were invited to symbolically participate in a neo-Elizabethan Elizabeth, romance where we would all, us Brits, be cut loose from the tendrils of, of Europe and be free to be you know, on the high seas once again like Walter Raleigh. Then he said, well, we'd be free to, to do new deals with China and Asia. Asia's where things are really happening. We're going to be cut loose from the EU, the dead hand of the EU, and work in Asia. I thought, well, no wonder you like Asia, mate, because there's very few workers' rights there. There's very few restrictions on the way you can despoil the environment. So, of course, although I'm being invited to be a Corsair with you, I'm not going to be up on the bridge with you, mate. I'm going to be down in the bilge, just with everyone else person. You know, you give me the Corsair, I'll be the bilge worker. <laughs> it, was very, it was very disingenuous, really, that whole idea of the freedom that we were now going to experience. It was going to be an unequal form of freedom. I mean, I heard an interesting thing the other day where we were talking about state intervention on business, recently become more interested in technology, you know, growth of technology and its relationship, I suppose, to politics and economy and just sort of social life and, and about how the state have, the Chinese state have stopped children on TikTok under the age of 14 being able to scroll through more than five images without there being a five second pause. And the algorithms have changed. So it's no longer just funny jokes and buns, this kind of thing. You know, it's, it's now the algorithm has moved to an educational one. So if they're, if they're below a certain age, what they get is yeah, educational stuff on the news feed. I just found it really interesting. This idea of state intervention, politics, it, they just seem so dated to most people's relationship with life. In, in general, micro and macro, I, th- I think on, on a larger scale. I mean, if you think about the implications on democracy of just having a phone, 
political part, you know, the old idea of political ideologies. We've got a couple of opposing ideas. It just, it, I just don't know how much longer that can carry on for now. Sorry, sorry, Dan, Dan. Yeah, I was just going to say, so Richard, you're saying that people are, are not invested in the state like they used to be. The citizen doesn't have a relationship with the state anymore. It has a relationship with capital or corporatism, but doesn't have a relationship. I don't, I, I don't think it matters, Dan. I don't, I don't think it matters what people think. I think it already thinks for itself. That's the problem. Okay. And it's moving It's moving at a technological oh, determinism see. as opposed to a determinism of culture, which is it's moving too quickly almost. Richard, yeah. what strikes me there is that when the internet first appears, as it were, there's a lot of very idealistic view that this sort of create the new public sphere. It's going to be a wiki, Wikipedia yeah. kind of democracy in which knowledge yeah. will be free, access to knowledge free, and uh, that, in a sense, would, would break the paradigm of governments themselves. We'd be citizens free to explore the world, interact with each other in ways unheard of before. It would be like a, yeah. a deeper democracy. Yeah, that didn't happen, did it, really? In a sense, discussions of economic structures are irrelevant because these structures have been revolutionised underneath us. I think we're going through a, a change that we're ill-prepared for. And it's like I said to Dougie earlier, I, I wonder if the academic models that we have, not even not even academic models, just the language that we have to understand politics, culture, even things like personal identity now are shifting so quickly on, on how we understand ourselves, both at the deepest personal level. You know, your sexuality has now become a discursive, open thing to talk about. And it's changed rapidly in, in amongst this connecting with, with people and technology, which we assume is, is a neutral thing when it's not. It's not neutral at all. It's owned by transnationals and it purposely shapes the way in which we think about things. And it seems strange, like China have, have actually intervened and limited the way for this algorithm to change the way people think. And I, I just wanted, Doug, if in your research you've looked at any of this, these new relationships that are forming between companies like Google, Apple, whatever it may be, and the state, and then the, the population themselves. I mean, Yeah, I think... Bringing up China is like a really kind of fascinating point because I think China is seen as the embodiment of this like neo-statist model. But okay, they still have these sorts of, they're technically state-owned enterprises, but they act just like private, corporate, international bodies. They're on the international market, they're trading stock, they're um, competing for greater market share and all these things by ruthlessly cutting down on worker conditions and workers pay but there is still this state guidance over the economic structures the usage of technology investment and all these things and Dougie, um, just quickly there, there you said about this the intervention but just to go back to the beginning of the conversation on freedom there's surely a debate there so i've got two daughters and, and a son as well but my two daughters i ask but they don't listen much <laughs> to not be on their phones so much it's definitely not good for you and it, and it affects so many things the ability to concentrate read you know all, all of these other issues and and it's mm. not a neutral thing they're not just summing through so in some respects they they are gaining a form of freedom through state in, in, intervention <laughs> so richard in that sense you are you are the state you are the paternalistic state literally the paternalistic state since you're the father and you're forcing them to be free restricting their freedom in order to enhance their freedom and that is the essence of so much of our discussions of recent uh, podcasts it's behind this discussion now in the relationship between the state the internet international markets globalization is to what extent the state has to restrict in order to enhance freedom and can restrict in order to enhance freedom the freedom of the corporation is the freedom of the pike over the minnow and the relationship with our in our micro world of our families 
is the same. To what extent do parents restrict the freedom in order to enhance the freedom of their children? Goodness me, if we knew the answer to that. Could we say, like, I like your point, um, Rich, about technolo technological determinism and this mm. idea of freedom. Could we say that the individual citizen is now effectively becoming a product of the economy through the use of algorithms, but it's being sold back to the individual consumer as if they are exercising their freedom in using mm. the apps that are actually possibly subtly incarcerating their thoughts and emotions and ideas about the world that they're sharing with others. We're becoming like products rather rather than uh, active citizens. This was Marcuse's point. I think what you've just explained there, Danny, isn't that repressive right. desublimation? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's an example <laughs> of that, isn't it? It, it is. Seamlessly went into that. Yeah, I think that, Can that I, idea... I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, Richard, repressive desublimation, because I, I want to say that so I can edit me saying that in there later. <laughs> <laughs> too comfortable this comfortable prison makes us all less active less engaged and more fundamentally cut off from each other and our circumstances there's a really good way to kind of link the points there as well is that this question of digital space we kind of maybe we originally would have thought of it as like the new public sphere right that by going on a sort of like discussion forum you're in like open city forum right where you're there with your fellow citizens discussing things but like you say it's not public space, it's private space. These things are owned by massive corporate entities that are looking to harvest and sell your data to advertisers, by looking to keep you scrolling for as long as possible, by looking to get their psychological hooks in you so that you're staying in their private space as a commodity that they can sell you as for as long as possible. And of course, that means any discourse that you're going to even be involved in, but even discover, right? Like what conversations are you going to be able to find and participate in, in these sort of private spaces are determined by algorithms. That mm. it's that idea, right? Of like, to link it back to sort of like Republican concerns with like domination. You're completely under the arbitrary power of these corporations, but not even like by their like conscious decision, but by algorithmic numerical decision, you're being fed these conversations that you could participate in. There's no sort of like rational self-determination about it. You're just being completely dominated by these algorithms that are controlling your life. And you think about like, you can maybe to link it, this is work my supervisor has done in this field on companies like Uber mm. or Uber Eats, where you have casual gig workers that are working for piecemeal rates based on the work assigned to them through this digital platform. But the digital platform, the way it assigns all its work is done by algorithms. The pay is calculated by an algorithm uh, that is set by the, is organized by the company. Whether or not you're going to get any sort of bonus to make even regular minimum wage equivalent earnings is all determined by this corporation's algorithm. And so because this thing is all like private, unregulated space, as you say, technology is evolving so fast. This this isn't something that we've had time to carefully consider, understand and regulate as it's evolved. It's just evolved out of nowhere. In the last five years, this technology has sprung up and now there's this massive class of workers that are being dominated by these algorithms made to work exceedingly long hours to make basic pay. And we have, we still haven't really worked out a way to 
regulated it. That comes back, Dougie, to, to your research. Is there, is there a statist or a interventionist or response? I mean, the Chinese are trying to regulate access to the internet, access mm. to social media, in order for probably more con control reasons and authoritarian reasons, rather than protecting... I don't know. I mean, I think they are kind of worried, the Chinese, about certain Western values. There's a sense of cultural imperialism they're trying to protect themselves from. They're worried too many young people are, as you say, Richard, looking at pictures of puppies and bums rather than studying engineering. They have an idea of what young people should be doing. So there's a bit of social engineering going on there as well. So when you say about social engineering, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Is it? It's like not making a choice is making a choice because these algorithms are going to control what you see, what you think. They're not just neutral things. I mean, they're businesses. They're manipulating the, the beliefs that people have. They're altering it. So when you say that the Chinese, it's state intervention. It's, it's the very word intervention assumes that, that you're intervening in something which is perhaps neutrally occurring. And it's not. It's not something we've come across before as, as human beings. The technology is evolving at such a rate that we don't really discuss it in the same way. Can this world be regulated at all? I mean, is there any statist answer in the in any liberal society? I know you can put a great firewall around China or something. And try to try to manage what comes in. They'll probably fail at that eventually. Can a liberal society regulate media in a way that maintains their own liberal or liberal values, or is that was the battle already lost? Well, I'd, I'd say that business has has a very different view, if you can call it, of the good to what the traditional view of um, the state has. The state's view of the common good through political philosophy is very different to the current end that we have now which is a fundamentally a business model whereby you just have consumers and producers mm. and the idea of a common good seems to be something which once lived in the past it doesn't we don't refer to the good anymore and as rich says this is being fueled by uh, very fast algorithms which are taking us away from any possibility of understanding anything except just enjoyment that seems to be our only moral prerogative is to enjoy just think about your own sense of enjoyment on these technological devices which facilitate that enjoyment. I'm deeply sceptical that neo-statist intervention is even really possible in a solution, maybe like like Dan says, towards any sort of like common good. I, I think what it's really aimed at is ensuring that there's enough regulation and coordination and sort of any sort of intervention that crisis like terminal capitalist crisis can be avoided and that these firms can remain competitive that they can maintain a high rate of profit and that they can continue to function and dominate society because i think it's that classic sort of marxist point like not only a sort of like digital space is an actual public open communal space it's private space the state also isn't this neutral maybe ideal republican Mm -hmm. uh, communal space where we're deliberating openly about things it's also sort of entirely a almost private entity right the state is made up of and composed of a series of private interests that completely dominate it and very much like inform its sort of like inherent structures the way that it can even enact any processes of uh, intervening in the economy are always shaped by a logic of profitability maintaining sort of like some semblance of economic growth and stability 
and ensuring there's a minimal standard of life that <laughs> people aren't going to completely overthrow it. <laughs> what has or will change? If we fast forwarded to the end of your PhD and into the into the future and a few years, what what will we look back on and say? Pa- pan- pandemic and Brexit and an environmental catastrophe, probably the biggest story of the lot. What what will change about our politics? I think the environmental catastrophe is kind of the big looming question. But may, maybe sort of this turn towards state intervention is that's the next crisis that it's gonna, the state is going to try and grapple with is how on earth do we change our economic structures just enough that we can somehow survive uh, without completely collapsing the planet's life support system. Mm -hmm. I think probably what we're going to see is a very vague prediction, but I think the state is going to increasingly play a role of private contractor. The the state, in looking for sort of green solutions, you see this sort of like a Green New Deal, uh, a new economic recovery project or a green industrial revolution, whatever sort of the proposals are called, it's sort of this idea that we need to build this new green infrastructure and how that's going to be maybe done isn't by sort of state or democratically owned or socially owned construction of these new infrastructures. What's probably going to happen is the state is going to produce its revenue and invest it into these private companies that are going to build the state's capacity to try and manage these crises. Obviously, mm. that's the sort of problem with that is that any privatised or semi-state, semi-private solution is going to be one that's inherently bound by the logic of profit-making and marketability, right? That any solution is going to be one that they have to be able to make work in a market system that uh, we can only invest in green technology if we're actually going to be able to turn a profit on it even though we've got this big government contract, we need to turn, turn it around and make money on it. And we're going to have to cut costs. And for, for something as like wide scoping as environmental catastrophe, which needs a complete revolutionizing of how mm. we produce and how we consume and how we live together and how we build our cities and all of these things, okay. proposals that are within the margins of profitability just seem completely, hopelessly <laughs> inept. Uh, do people need the freedom to destroy the planet? Is that what people are? A little bit of hope, perhaps, with the use of the state and environmental protection. As you look at the kind of the forerunner with COVID, suddenly overnight, you have nearly three quarters of the nation having their salary paid for by the state. That mm. was There was no profit generated there at all. The state can do things when it needs to, like in wartime. So the furlough scheme, no profit was made. Okay, it kept it stopped riots in the streets and and society from fragmenting, which is fundamentally what I think any environmental measures will have to try and do, because not only will we have economic pressures, we'll have real environmental factors on our doorstep. Uh, you know, say 40, 50 years hence, where business as usual will not be able to carry on unless serious measures are put in place and people have to get used to having restrictions of freedom just to survive uh, in a society that's got almost addicted to freedom. I don't know how that will work. I think the first thing is to problematise, like you did the other week, the idea of freedom itself. I wonder how um, eager people are to defend their freedoms and their rights if they thought about freedom slightly differently.
Yeah, that's great. If I could, I'd like to bring those two points together. The, the point, Richard, you just made there, I think, brilliantly, very eloquently, that we need to think differently about freedom. And that, that might that might follow up several of the things we've said in recent podcasts, in the early part of this podcast, that freedom, as we have learned to think about it, is not going to endure. We need to think differently about freedom. And the other point I'd like to bring in is the one, Dan, you just made about the, the, the capacities of our society. The capacity is not just of the state, but the state harnessed to capitalism. Marx felt that capitalism was the stage before some kind of revolutionized society in order because he, he recognized, as socialists do, as, left, as the left has always done, that capitalism is an enormously dynamic force. And it's its end, the crisis of capitalism, the collapse of capitalism that would bring forth the next stage in society has been predicted by the left and predicted by the liberals and predicted by society and predicted by capitalists themselves again and again and again. The great crisis of the 1930s or the crisis of 2008, the banking crisis or the dot-com boom and bust. Capitalism is in a state of crisis permanently. Capitalism is a state of crisis. It reinvents itself. It's like the blob from outer space. You push against it, it absorbs. It absorbs, it incorporates it. It incorporates culture. It incorporates its own state of crisis. Its crisis becomes its engine. And that is, a ver that is why capitalism, I suspect, will actually curiously endure more than the other great model of our times, which is the authoritarian populism. The authoritarian populism is in China. Uh, harnessed to a curious populist nationalism and uh, Russia and Eastern Europe and uh, and elements of it in other countries as well, including our own. This uh, this appeal, the, the Trumpian appeal to populist nationalism will not work, was uh, highly unlikely to work, because the paradox of authoritarian regimes has always been they're actually more vulnerable and more aware and more uh, anxious about popular opinion, about the conditions that people are in, than that capitalism is. Capitalism and democracies can endure many more crises and difficulties uh, than authoritarian regimes. Because capitalism's essential brief is that it is, it's harnessed human greed, you know, the, uh, uh, the individual human greed, or, but not greed, I'll, I'll cancel greed, and say individual human desire turns into collective progress. If not necessarily collective good, as Adam Smith might have predicted, the invisible hand doesn't necessarily produce collective good, but it produces collective dynamism. Millions of people striving quietly in their lives of desperation will buy, will seek, will strive, will invent. And uh, ever since the advertising industry realized underneath everything, there's a kind of Lacanian fear of death. And if you can sell them a cream, which will keep away old age, or sell them a car, which will make them fly and be free and be young forever, or sell them any product, then human beings will try and buy their way out of the grave if the environmental crisis isn't too late. It's quite possible that we've already uh, damaged the planet sufficiently that this environmental crisis is going to be catastrophically awful and change societies in ways that we can never uh, utterly unpredictable and it's already too late to fix that that possibility the other possibility of nuclear disaster or further pandemics if human beings can can dodge those bullets i think if we were to step out of our time machines a hundred years from now we might well see as we looked around us on this new landscape of the corals bleached white and half the species on the earth extinct. But Elon Musk's corporation might well have developed some means of 
squeezing the sunlight out of cucumbers and putting it into energy cells and the great Amazonian consumer product producer and vendor will have given every human being more and more and more of something that is more now sustainable. It's not impossible that human beings and capitalism will survive on. I suspect, though, that unless they do, as Richard, you said, reconsider their sense of freedom, what we'll find is not that the world, in Robert Frost's term, ended in ice, and it didn't end in fire, but it ended in a kind of tedium, a kind of banality. And I think that's what the battle for our world is. It's about finding a generally accepted belief in the freedom that's derived through human compassion and community. Unfortunately, it's one of those things like, we're probably going to find out, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or finally, or finally well, worryingly, find out. Yeah. yeah. Or, 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 or we're too busy looking at our TikTok news <laughs> uh, feeds to worry. Yeah. 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 The metaverse. Yeah, the metaverse. Yeah, yeah. The virtual reality. Oculus. It'll be, it'll yeah. be like, yeah, yeah. Uh, by then I'll be a 400 pound fleshy blob with a, <laughs> with, with a, with a mask on. <laughs> in which I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the virtual world. You'll only realise the sea yeah. levels are rising when it's actually touching your feet because you're plugged yeah, into your VR headset. You're like, oh God, you're yeah. Okay. All My right. feet are cold. Yes. <laughs> between the furlough scheme and what might be needed for dealing with the environmental catastrophe. We need mm. massive shutdown, maybe, of certain aspects of society in order to limit our CO2 outputs and all these things. There's a book by um, Andreas Mao, I think it's called Corona, Corona, Climate Catastrophe and Permanent Emergency or something like that. And then the subtitle is War Communism. It's this idea, like, we talk about uh, maybe the original state, like some of the original state interventions in uh, World War II, you know, and World War I as well. This massive rampant state control of society in order to direct it towards the one goal of uh, we need to win the war. And maybe we're sort of, you see, like, the the language around the pandemic uh, was sort of the same, that we need to completely intervene and control society in order to win this war against the invisible enemy the virus that kind of becomes moral justification right but whatever personal individual liberties uh, we enjoyed before we are in a state of exception a state of emergency we're in warlike conditions that require this massive state override and coordination uh, in order to get us out of it i think that kind of idea of like a state of exception is exactly sort of what's going to have to be applied for any sort of solution to uh, climate catastrophe as well. And I guess the problem is, is how do we actually mobilise that? Are we just going to leave it to sort of... Like, like what happened with the pandemic, where it happened so quickly and we were so unprepared that state authority kind of just completely went unchecked and uh, imposed things as it wished. And as a result, I mean, the COVID measures weren't just purely logical, neutral measures. They still favoured 
private companies in a certain way, mm. right? But certain businesses were allowed to stay open. Certain Definitely. workers were still compelled to go to work in what were called essential industries. But, you know, if you're talking about food delivery uh, services of like snacks and stuff like this, that's not, this is clearly just a continuation of like private enterprise in unsafe conditions. So I think the question is, okay, there are going to need to be these sorts of like mass mobilizations, but also uh, mass restrictions. But how do we do that in a way that doesn't let it be completely dominated by private power? That any sort of mass collective action we need to take to deal with something like the pandemic or climate catastrophe or any other crisis, how do we organize that in a way that allows it to not be that arbitrary domination of us? Mm. How can we do it in such a way where okay, yes, we're placing restrictions, we're taking a dramatic action, uh, but it's still somehow democratic action. Mm. How are we doing it in a way that isn't letting us be continually dominated by this aristocratic power? Dougie, mm-hmm. that was fantastic. Thank you. Yes. Thank you Dougie, so much. Thank you, very, thank you for your thank time you. and thank you for that. It's really, I could just keep on talking for ages. Mm. <laughs> yeah, great to talk to you guys. Yeah, yeah thanks so much, Dougie. Thanks. I yeah, don't think I've seen you, Dougie. Say since our, yeah. our last philosophy group. Yeah. It's been a few years now, hasn't it? And yeah, great to you. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers, Cheers, guys. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers, Dougie. Thank you. Cheers, Dougie. Thanks, Dougie. to the Spinoza Triad with John Gibbs, Dr. Richard Miller and Dan Rowland. And this week our guest, Dougie Booth. If you've enjoyed our show, please share it on social media. If, on the other hand, you'd like to be a guest or you have suggestions for future discussions or comments generally, please visit our website and contact us through the email there. Please join us for future episodes and thank you for listening.